Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennial Money Medical. My name is Dev Raga and I'm your host and in this episode, we'll go through the basic core truths of investing, which you must remember, master, rinse and repeat. Now, if you want to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. For those of you that are new to the channel, there are three main aims, education, empowerment and entertainment. Let's get started. Now, before we got on to the main topic of investing truths, Lee asks, Hi Dev, what's the usual process of winding up an SMSF? I've noted my SMSF fees are high, much higher than any industry super fund, and the performance isn't any better. It's taking a lot of my time to manage it, and over the long term, I probably should stick with an industry super fund. Thanks for the question, Lee, and that's quite a relevant one. Now, I've discussed SMSFs in episode 51 in my previous live as DevRaga Personal Finance. That's a really deep dive. If you're interested, go back and listen to that episode. Now, to answer this question about how to wind up one's SMSF, let's go into it into more detail. Now, that's a self-managed super fund if you're a complete novice when it comes to superannuation or personal finance. Now, for those of you that are new to SMSF, basically it's, like I said, a self-managed super fund where you have complete control over what assets you have within it. Superannuation is just a vehicle for your retirement and the SMSFs allow significant personalization of what types of investments you have within it. Now, you can have equities, you can have specific types of properties, or even commercial businesses, buildings, whatever. So it's very, very personalized. And some people like the personality of, you know, having very, very specific investments within their SMSF, which you can't really do with traditional superannuation funds. Now, there's lots of costs associated with running an SMSF, including investing costs, accounting costs, auditing costs, legal advice costs, tax costs, and every other financial advice ever associated with it costs. So it's not a cheap thing to run, but it can be worth it for some people depending on the portfolio size. Because the larger the size of your portfolio means you can achieve some scale and reduce your costs overall. Now, I guess the question then becomes, why would anyone want to wind down their SMSF? Well, I can think about four reasons here. The first one is health reasons. If a fund member becomes ill or older, they may wish to give up their SMSF because of the time it takes to manage it. The stress associated with it, it just may not be worth the returns or the rewards for that particular person. The second reason might be the fund's assets may have been withdrawn down to a point where it doesn't actually make it cost-effective sense to keep running it. Remember, the larger your portfolio within an SMSF, the more scaling and more cost-effective it becomes. So remember that some of the SMSFs almost always have fixed costs, which don't change much depending on the size of your portfolio. So as your portfolio is drawn down and it becomes lesser and lesser potentially, then those fixed costs becomes a greater percentage of your total portfolio. And it just may not make sense in order to actually have an SMSF. The third reason is sometimes the SMSF is actually not complying with the superannuation legislation. So, for example, if a fund member moves overseas. And the fourth reason, which is, you know, pretty obvious, is if the trustee themselves have lost the ability 
to be SMSE trustees because of the criminal convictions or dishonesty, which makes them automatically disqualified. So let's discuss the steps. There are six main steps involved, and this is just a simplified version. And I suggest you go up and read about it and learn about it yourself. But I've just simplified this um, to make it a little bit easier for people that are interested in this topic to understand. Step one is you got to get the consent of all the fund members in writing. Remember, we're talking about winding down a superannuation fund, that is your SMSF. So you need to have a formal meeting. And that meeting with the fund members needs to have a date, a time, an agenda, and must be minuted. The agreement must be in writing and the venue of the meeting must be documented. So it's got to be a specific meeting with specific goals and specific objectives, and that's got to be recorded and minuted and make it all official. Now, the meeting must have a chairperson and the attendees must be listed individually in their full names. Of course, the same names that are under the SMSF uh, funders as well. And the notification has to go to the ATO about the SMSF wind down within 28 days of this meeting. So it's very, very specific. That's step one. That's the fundamental step. Without this, you will have problems. Step two is you got to check your trust deed. Now, what that means is the trust deed will have specific information about how to actually wind down your superannuation fund. For example, it may have instructions on arranging for all the assets to be sold out and where the money should be deposited, or perhaps how to roll it over to another super fund. So a lot of people may choose to roll it over into an industry super fund. So that's what this question is all about, winding down your SMSF and going back to an industry super fund. So step two is really important because you've got to check your trust deed about any specific instructions on how to actually get rid of those assets. Step three is determining what to do with the member benefits. That's really important. The SMSF will still be active as long as there are funds within it. So once the assets are sold, the money is within the fund and that needs to be distributed to the fund members. If the members haven't reached conditions of release, then the monies received from sales has to go towards the members' super fund. So that needs to be nominated. And if the members have reached their preservation age, then it may be released to the chosen bank account. Now, part of this process means that all of the relevant documentation needs to be chased up for taxation purposes. So the bank statements, the investment statements, the contribution statements, the benefits paid, etc. Then you need to submit that to your respective accountants for lodgement for taxation purposes. That's step three. Step four is the paying out phase. So if members haven't reached preservation age, they will need to nominate another super account for the funds to be paid into. Now, there is something called a super stream, which the ATO uses, and you need to use the same system to roll funds into the new super fund. This is where accurate records need to be kept for capital gains tax purposes. Remember, you still need to pay capital gains tax if you sold all of the assets and paid a capital gain because you have now realised those capital gains by selling off the assets from your SMSF. Now, if you've held the assets for greater than 12 months, you'll still get the 50% CGT discount and you still pay the taxes at a lower rate within the super than if you held the asset outside of the super. So that all stays the same. But taxes follow you whatever you do. You can't escape them, so make sure you have enough money at the end of the financial year to pay those capital gains taxes. That's if you have capital gains. And we hope you do because that's the whole point of super. Step five is the auditing process. Now, you'll need to appoint an auditor to do a final audit of all the financial statements to ensure that all boxes are ticked, all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed. The auditor must be ASIC approved. Now, that's really important. It can't be some random person. And this will help finalise any tax liabilities you may have. It's basically a final check before everything is formalised and wound up. And once the audit has been done and passed successfully, you can lodge your final SMSF tax return. Then the ATO makes its own determination 
about the tax liability status. So again, you can make your own determination, but the ATO has the final say. Taxes will follow you. And the final step, step six, is the final letter from the ATO. Once the ATO have made their final little recommendations and their tax liability statuses, they've done their little bits. They send you a formal letter explaining your SMSF and its associated ABN has been closed. Now, if you roll the funds into another super fund like an industry super fund, you need to perhaps wait a little bit of time before the funds actually appear into the industry super fund. So it doesn't happen like overnight or anything like that then you need to make whatever investment decision, remember, you want to make within the industry super fund. Now, often what happens with industry super funds is they just go on to the balanced fund. You need to then log in and change it if you don't like the balanced fund. Of course, now you need to make sure that you check their fees, any insurances they may have, and how it applies to you. And the process starts again. Just because you're with an industry super fund doesn't mean that you stop doing your due diligence. You still got to do those things. So the important lesson here is if you want to wind down your SMSF, you need to sell everything in it and then transfer the funds. Now, there is something called an in-specie transfer, but I think this only applies if you want to transfer an existing asset outside of SMSF into an SMSF. So I don't think you can do an in-specie transfer during an SMSF wind-down phase. But I think this specific question is probably all the accountant geeks out there and taxation lawyers out there or superannuation lawyers out there. You need to go and do your own due diligence and something to check with those professionals. So that's about it for SMSF and wind-downs. And I hope this clarifies it and simplifies it. It's a six-step process. It's worthwhile engaging a professional to help you with this process, given the tax implications. Try not to do this by yourself. Now to the main topic, the truths about investing. What are they? Now, I've got about 13 truths about investing. The first one is asset allocation. Ignore it at your own peril. Now, asset allocation just means where you deploy your capital in order for it to work for you and make you more money. Typically, there are four main asset classes, equity, such as share markets, property, whether it's residential, commercial or industrial, cash or term deposits or bonds, so-called defensive assets, and speculative assets, such as alternatives, commodities, cryptocurrency, etc., Now, some people want to practice equal asset allocation. That is, if you have $10,000 to invest, you just put $2,500 into each asset class of your liking. But others look at risk and then allocate based on risk. For example, equities are more risky than cash and term deposits or bonds. So it may make sense to have less allocation into equities on a nominal amount given the volatile nature of it. Now, the end point here is choose your asset allocation based on your risk profile. And your risk profile depends on one, age and stage of life, two, appetite for risk, three, length of investment, four, expected returns, and five, the fees that you're going to be able to pay for that. In my life, I basically have equities and property. Although I'm moving most of my money towards equities nowadays in the form of index funds, I just don't feel that property any longer is going to be worth my while because it's such an intensive process to do. Um, Of course, some people love property. Um, I have property. I have to be honest, I do have investment property. But moving forward, I am allocating a lot of my capital towards index funds. And I don't do bonds. I don't do commodities. I have some cryptocurrency, but it doesn't even rate as an investment for me. It's just basically speculative gambling. And I'm focusing more and more on my energy and assets and time and capital on equities because of the ease of management, lower fees, and the ability to automate them. So that's number one, asset allocation. Number two is diversification. That's really important. Now, a lot of people confuse this with asset allocation. Asset allocation is deploying your money into an asset class. Once in that asset class, how will that money be distributed? For example, 
once you've made your decision to buy equities, how would you diversify your investment? The whole point of diversification is to ensure the investment's rise is smoothed out over the long term. So a bit like going on a roller coaster. It would be madness to go on the roller coaster without listening to the safety briefings, wearing restraints and following instructions. Now, diversification is your strategy to protect against any downfalls. So let's use an example to highlight this point. From January 2011 to January 2012, these are the returns for various asset classes. Oz equities was negative 6.3%. US equities was positive 2.7%. International equities was negative 3.9%. Australian bonds was 10.6%. Cash was 5%. And Australian property was only 3.6%. Now, the next year, from Jan 2012 to Jan 2013, these were the returns for the same asset classes. Oz equities from 6.3% negative to 22.8% positive. US equities from just 2.7% positive to 18.3%. International equities from negative 39 to 17.8%. Australian bonds from 10.6% down to 6.9%. Australian property was 3.6%, now 35.4%, and cash went down from 5% to 3.9%. A year after that, January 2013 to January 2014, these were the results again. Oz equities, 15%, not bad. US equities, 47%, amazing. International equities, 42%. Oz bonds, only 2.9%. Australian property was only 7%. And cash was only 2.9%. Now you can see there is never a year where one single asset class or even within that asset class, a particular geographical market does well all the time. It fluctuates. It changes almost on a yearly basis. And the last 10 years have been the ultimate bull run when it comes to equities, but it doesn't mean it'll happen in the next 10 years. Hence, putting all your eggs in one basket or various baskets is better of various risk profiles because it's always going to be the best way to protect against your downside. And that's the most important thing here. Diversification is not about your upside. It is about your downside. And that's what you're trying to protect. Number three. The market is never certain. Ignore the noise. Every year around Christmas, pundits like to comment and predict about what's going to happen the very next year. Every quarter towards the end, pundits like to commence and talk about predictions, what the next quarter will bring them. This happens every single quarter, every single year. It never stops. That's how they make money. They make money by making news. And they sell you stuff. You watch it. You might trade based on those results. Now, if people know what's going to happen tomorrow, then there won't be a market. It's as simple as that. So don't worry about what's happening next quarter, next month, or even next year. I only worry about what's going to happen over the next 30 to 40 years. We know in the next 30 to 40 years, or I know, that the market is likely to go up. It's not 100% certain, but it's very likely. And the probability of that is very high. And the key to successful investing is not to worry about the future or even look at your upside all the time. It's about protecting your downside, which then goes back to asset allocation and diversification. So that's number three. The market is never certain. Ignore the noise. Number four, risk reward ratio. You've got to manage your risk. Managing risk is important. So what does that mean? So managing risk is critical because you need to work out your risk profile. And your risk profile changes based on age, your stage of life, whether you have dependents, your appetite for risk, your personal personality, your length of investment, your expected returns, and the fees. And you need to take some risk in investing. There is no such thing as risk-free investing. And if someone truly says to you, that they've got an investment that's 100% risk-free, it's BS. 
Likewise, if someone says investing in company ABC means its return is going to be 10 times in the next one year, well, it's possible. But the next question is, what is my risk for this investment? And if the answer is, there's no risk, well, again, in the short term, that's BS. Fundamentally, if you want more returns, you're likely going to have to take more risk in the short term. But don't confuse risk with volatility. Volatility is short-term, whereas long-term risk is more long-term. And I've discussed this concept in episode 75. If you're interested, I discuss risk versus volatility. So investing isn't always about looking at the returns and going for the highest risk, going for the biggest bang for your buck. It's a sweet spot for you to maximize your returns for a given level of risk. Now, this is where it's good to learn about the efficient frontier and modern portfolio theory. For all you geeks out there, if you're really interested, I have done an episode on it in the past and uh, probably will do it in the future as well if there's uh, anyone interested in that sort of really geeky stuff. Now, let's use an example to highlight this point about your risk profile and managing your risk. Amy is a disability support worker who's just qualified. Now, she's 29 years old. She looks at her super investments, and in that, she noted her investments are in balanced fund. Now, this breakdown is 40% equities, 40% bonds, 10% cash, and 10% property. She figures her investing life is going to be about 40 years, so decides to change this to 80% equities, 10% bonds, 10% cash, and no property. Amy has looked at her risk profile and decided she's willing to accept more short-term volatility in the equities market for the long-term gains, which means despite taking some risk, her long-term risk is actually quite low, and she's quite comfortable with that. So essentially, she's using longevity as a hedge against risk. Now, if you fast forward 30 years, Amy is now 59 years old. Her children are mostly grown up. Her partner is looking at retirement. And Amy now reviews her super and decides that 80% equities is simply too much for her. She decides to manage her risk by changing that over the super asset allocation to 50% equities, 30% bonds, 10% cash, and 10% property. She decides she's still willing to take some risk with equities and property, but wants a safety cushion against any downfalls by having some bonds in there as well. So in other words, as Amy reaches various stages of her life, she's managing her risk, and she understands the risk versus reward ratio and is trying to find a sweet spot. Now, your financial advisor should be helping you with this. That's number four, managing risk. Number five... I love this, time in the market, not timing the market. Now, this is one of my favorite sayings I've come across, and it's so simple yet so profound. The moral here is, staying in the market for long terms is far more powerful and important than jumping in and out of the market. And this is particularly true for equities. It's also true for property in Australia. Now, why is this the case? To time the market, you need to time it right to get in and also to get out of the market. So you've got to make two decisions and they both have to be correct. So you need to be right twice. With time in the market, you don't need to make two decisions. You just need to make one decision. And the decision is to get into the market. That's the most important and most relevant. And that's it. Now, the other decision about staying in the market, well, that's passive, right? So you don't actually make that decision unless you physically take it out. Whereas to actually get into the market is the most important decision you will make. And here's the data. If you took the US market S&P 500 index as an example, let's say you started investing in 2005. If you invested $10,000 and just left it, by the end of 2020, you would have quadrupled your money just by doing nothing. So it would have been worth about $41,500 roughly. But let's say if you missed the 10 best days in that time, by the end of 2020, you would have only had $18,800. So if you think this is too short of a term, and you know, let's face it, those numbers don't really excite anyone, let's go back in time. 
Let's take a longer time frame. Let's use the same index since 1930. If you stayed in the market since 1930 and did all, do anything with your investments, you would have a total return inflation adjusted of about 38,777%. Now, if you missed the 10 best days in each decade, you would only have a total return of 28%, inflation adjusted. The flip side is, if you're so smart and didn't invest in the 10 worst days in each of the decades, your return would have been 3.7 million percent. Now, no one achieves this on a consistent basis, not even the greatest investors of all time. But I can't stress this enough. Start early, do it forever, stay in the market. It's such a simple concept, but it's so profound and it's life-changing. Number six, there is no perfect investment strategy. You've got to find your own. I get asked this all the time. Is there an investment which suits everyone all the time? The answer is no. What suits you today may not suit you in the next five or ten years. What suits you today may not suit me. So you will need to periodically evaluate your investments, just like periodically I need to evaluate my investments. One thing is true. The returns of investments over the long term is likely to be positive rather than negative, provided those investments are allocated well and they're diversified well, have low fee structures, and you simply add to it and stay in the market. So let's look at the data. If you invested in the Australian stock market in 1990 and left it until the end of 2019, and that's where my data ends, out of 31 years, 25 years would have been a positive return, and only six years would have been a negative return. And out of the positive return years, on average, you would have been positive 13.87% per annum. The best year being 2007 at 30.3% right before the GFC. Out of the negative return years, on average, you would have been negative 7.8%. That's it. The moral here is, over the long term, you have a far better chance of achieving a positive return, but it requires one thing. Don't change your investment strategy constantly. Number seven, money doesn't have emotions, so don't have one. My Vanguard portfolio doesn't cry, it doesn't smile, it doesn't get angry, it doesn't get sad. Money doesn't have emotion. It never cries for you. So never cry for money. Keep your emotions in check. Emotions play a huge part in investing process. Acting on something you read or heard or saw on TV or on Facebook is a disaster. The concept here is people feel worse about losing money and investments rather than gaining money and investments. The pain of losing money is worse than the win of gaining money. Psychologically, we are trained not to lose money rather than to achieve a great result with money. And I've done an episode specifically on this concept called loss aversion. Now, here is a system which might help you sort of stay out of that emotional roller coaster. Have investing goals. Always refer back to your investing plan, your investing goals and objectives and investing strategy. I have an overarching plan, but also have a five-year plan every now and again. I look at it and make sure that my net worth is going up or what's happened, if it's going down, if it's going sideways. I analyze it. I don't do it all the time, but every five years, I take an overarching view of my financial life and where myself and my family are headed. So the overall picture is very important. Why are you doing this? If you can stick to this question, always ask yourself this question. That is really important. Why are you doing this? And if your goals and objectives and risk profile and diversification and asset allocation is optimal, you don't need to change anything. You just got to check on it every few years. So don't check your investments regularly. This is hard to do, I know, particularly on really bad days. And also very hard to do on particularly very good days. And sometimes curiosity gets the better of even me. 
Now, the more times you check your investments, the more chances you have changing it, therefore making a mistake and changing the goals and objectives without actually knowing what you're doing. So try not to check your investments too often. Just every now and again, have a sneak peek. Don't spend too much time. Number eight, market crashes can be a good thing. It doesn't mean you've lost money. Now, I have this saying, and I say to everyone about this, when you go to Coles and all of the items are marked for a discount, would you walk back out and come back on a day when prices are back to normal again? No one ever does this. That would be mad. When the prices are down at Coles, you buy more. Now, think of the stock market exactly like a Coles shopping centre. When the market crashes, it's great. You want to keep consistently investing so you can dollar cost average out over the long term. That is, when the stock market crashes, it's akin to Coles having discounts. It's exactly the same. Every aisle might represent an index fund or geographical location, and every product represents a business. It's literally similar to the stock market. And you might go to the deli aisle and the bread aisle and the fruit and veg aisle and the chocolate aisle and the yogurt aisle and the dairy aisle and the ice cream aisle. You put everything into your trolley and you walk out. That's your index fund. So if you use that analogy, when Coles marks down their prices, you buy more. When the stock market goes down, you should buy more. Or at least don't change your investing strategy. That's why in 2020, when COVID happened, it was one of the best times for millennials to make some serious money by not doing anything. Jack Bogle famously said, just stand there, do nothing. So that is probably the most important advice when it comes to investing and behavioural finance. And I've done an episode on behavioural finance. If you're interested, go back and listen to that as well. That's truth number eight. Market crashes can be a good thing. Truth number nine, investing is not a get-rich-quick scheme. Nothing in investing is easy. If there is an easy investment which promises solid returns with minimal risk or zero risk, it's BS. Everything has a risk. So don't fall for traps or get-rich-quick schemes. Investing is a long-term, calculated, meticulous and slow process. Now, what tends to happen is that the first 10 years is difficult because you may not see much of the returns that you may want to see. But after this, you will note the rapid growth and in the third and fourth decade of investing, that's where the power of compounding really kicks in. And when it does... As Jack Bogle says, be prepared to be surprised and maybe have a doctor on standby in case your heart flutters. Now, let's go for a quick ad break. And when I come back, we'll continue to learn about investing truths. We're going to go from truth 10 all the way to 13 and finish up. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Okay, welcome back. Let's go on learning about investing truths. We're up to number 10. Sometimes it's easier to just buy the haystack 
because boring is good. Now, basically, if you visit a website called Spiva, S-P-I-V-A, just Google it, they track the market indices and their performance compared to active investors who pick and choose funds or stocks. And they do it for various markets. And the website is part of SB Global, and they're a company in the US which provide market analytics um, and create indices and ETFs and also deal with clients, most likely institutional. And I don't know whether they actually deal with retail investors. That's something you might have to Google yourself. I'm not sure. But they're mainly basically a data analytics company. Now, the data is very clear about this. Index investing on the whole provides better results when compared to active investors. Now, we're talking about broad market indexes, right? Go be careful about thematic and those niche indexes. I'm talking about broad market like the ASX 300 or the ASX 200. So here are the stats for the last 15 years compared to major markets in the world. United States, 82.5% of active investors underperform the market. That's a phenomenal statistic. In Canada, 83.1% active investors underperform the market. This is in the last 15 years. In Mexico, 88.89% underperformed active investors, that is, underperformed the market. In Chile, it was 97.78%. In Brazil, it was 86.04%. You can see the pattern here. In Europe, includes all European equity funds, it was 84.77%. In the Middle East and North Africa, 92.68% of active investors underperformed the market. In South Africa, interestingly, only 54.12% underperformed the market. So that's interesting in South Africa. It's a bit of an outlier. In India, 82.72% of active investors underperform the market. In Japan, 79.4% of active investors underperform the market. And in Australia, 85.8% of active investors underperform the market. So the moral of the story here is buy the haystack. Don't worry about the needle. So if you think you can beat the market, I don't have a problem with that. I want you to go for it. But the biggest thing you need to think about is you need to be consistent. Are you going to consistently beat the market almost every single year, eight out of 10 times? And the chances are it's not possible. So why take the risk? Having said this, be careful about some of the index funds out there, which are actually not passively managed. They're actually actively managed index funds. And the other thing is, watch out a little bit about this thematic ETFs. And index funds, which are, you know, very, very narrow, because if they're thematic and too narrow, then you kind of lose the diversification aspect of things. And this whole notion about ethical investing and all that sort of stuff, there's a lot of ETFs out there that claim to be ethical. Here's my answer to that. What's ethical for you may not be ethical for me. And that's the problem with ethical investing. Now, I think overall, you need to invest with your values and that's completely fine. So ethical and ESG investing you got to do your due diligence to make sure that the funds that you're investing in are actually ethical. Now, the stats refer to broad market indices. So when I say 85% of active investors in Australia underperform the benchmark index in Australia, what I mean is I'm talking about the broad market index funds. So the benchmark index in Australia is ASX 200 or ASX 300. Now, personally, my experience is in medicine. So I'm not an expert investor. I'm not a personal finance whiz, although a lot of people think I am. I'm actually not. I'm learning just like you. I'm just trying to, you know, learn and also educate at the same time. And I've kept my personal finances very simple. Simplicity for me matters. I don't like complex structures. Time and time again, it's worked for me. And I'm into my 12th year of investing So when it's all wraps up at the year 40, which is going to be another 28 years away, it'd be interesting to see the outcomes. Essentially, what I'm doing is I'm just following the evidence. So think of it like a prospective longitudinal study on an individual level. So that's investing truth number 10. Number 11 is fees matter. It concerns me that a lot of people don't pay attention to fees. This is especially true for your superannuation. Do you really know how much super fees you're actually paying and how much they're charging you? I generally think if you're paying more than 0.5% per annum overall in your superannuation on a consistent basis, if you're paying more than 0.5%, it's a problem. If you're paying less than 0.5%, that's generally you're doing reasonably well. 
okay? So I use that sort of benchmark of 0.5% for your superannuation. Now, I just want to highlight this point using an example. Amy is a theatre tech working in a large hospital. Now, she's been maximising her concessional super contributions for many, many years. And I've sort of calculated this based on about $25,000 per year. Although now it's actually $27,500, but, you know, that doesn't really matter. I just want to highlight a point here. And she's been advised by her accountant to consider her super strategy. So when she checked her super fees, she noted that she was in a balanced fund within a super paying about 0.9% in fees. The performance of the fund has been phenomenal at 10.1%. And she's been with this fund for 12 years. So how much in fees has she paid over the years if she had maximized her super at around $25,000 per year? So in those 12 years, she would have paid about $40,827 in superannuation fees, roughly, in terms of investment fees. Not so much contributions, tax and stuff, that's separate, in terms of the actual fees charged for her investments. Now, supposing she continues on this trajectory for another 28 years, so that's a total of 40 years of investing, how much fees will she be charged over the entire time? Assuming that she gets an annualised return of 10.1%. Now, I know what you're thinking, 10.1% is unrealistic and I agree, but it doesn't really matter what percentage you choose. It, like the mathematics doesn't lie. It's You can choose 8%, 9%, 6%, 7%. 7%. But let's just assume that it's 10.1%. Let's assume it's 0.9% management fee. How much fees would she have paid? Well, it turns out she would have actually had about $9.5 million in a super after 40 years which is phenomenal. She hasn't done anything special. She's just maximised her super contributions long-term over 40 years. But she would have paid $2.4 million in fees. That's also phenomenal. $2.4 million in fees for a portfolio in the end worth about $9.5 million. So the moral here is, notice how the fees compound as well, even though her returns are very high at 10.1%. Now, suppose at the time of sort of her accountant warning her about the superannuation, she switched on the 13th year to a low-cost index option within her super. And let's assume her fees are around 0.2% for this low-cost option. Her portfolio now, after 40 years, will be worth $11.3 million, and her fees would only be $631,444, and that includes the initial $40,000 fee that she would have paid for the first 12 months. Oh, sorry, 12 years, beg your pardon. So the fee reduction of 0.7%, so she went from 0.9% to 0.2%, keeping everything the same, has resulted in a 20% higher return longer term. So fees matter. The power of compounding when it comes to returns is important, but fees compound too. So wherever possible, keep your fees low. And here are my general rules of thumb in regards to fees. Number one, keep your fees less than 0.5% for superannuation or generally any investment. And they are getting cheaper and cheaper, which is fantastic. And most of the industry super funds should have an indexed option anyway. Keep your brokerage, which is also a form of fees, less than 1% of your parcel of investments. If you're investing $1,000 at a time, try and keep your brokerage less than $10. And again, if you're investing outside of super, again, keep your fees overall less than 0.5% as much as possible. Now, these are all sort of rough rules of thumb, okay? It's not sort of a 100% rule of thumb. It's rough rule of thumb. So you had to have a bit of a benchmark. So you need to have a look at the fees that you're paying. That's all I'm saying. Now, that doesn't mean that higher fees is always bad. But in investing, you will find it remarkable that higher fees actually don't equate to better products or services. That's actually different to what happens in real life outside of investment. In other industries like retail and cars and homes, usually there is a measurable difference in quality or service when you pay more for a product or service. In investing, it's mostly the opposite. So that's number 11. Now to number 12, investing truths number 12. Investing is mostly behavioural. Turn off the TV, keep it simple, keep it consistent. And have you ever wondered most of the time when you're driving in a jam-packed traffic, if you just stick to your lane, most of the times 
you probably end up getting to your destination at the same time or even quicker compared to constantly switching lanes. Smart people have actually studied this phenomenon. They actually ran simulations in a study published in 1990 and they showed that changing lanes frequently doesn't actually help you get to your destination faster. How's this even possible? Well, it's because the driver of the slower lane is only comparing themselves to the cars passing in the lane next to them. This creates an illusion of slower and faster lanes, when in fact, as a specific point of time, to get a better opinion, it's probably better that you stand at the edge of the road and watch all of the lanes together and observe them and see which lanes are actually doing better than the other. And... It turns out that if you don't change lanes, this is a major catastrophe ahead. On average, your lane will start moving just as quickly too. So the true way to determine the lane speeds is to stand on the side of the road and observe all of the lanes, not just one lane compared to your lane. And the study concluded that despite no major difference in arrival times at destination, the person who constantly changed lanes took more risk. That analogy is very accurate for investing. So investing truth number 12 is investing is mostly behavioural. Turn off the TV, focus on your behaviour. And the lucky last is investing truth number 13. You don't need much to start investing. Start early, do it forever. I get this question a lot. Dev, I'm going to be a doctor or I'm going to be a nurse, going to be a subspecialist nurse or nurse practitioner. So investing can wait because I'm going to make more money when I become a fellow doctor or nurse practitioner or a critical care nurse or, you know, fully qualified. I think that's a really risky way of looking at investing. And the point of not needing much to start and starting early and doing it forever is really important. Let's highlight this principle using an example. Amy and Robert are twins. Amy and Rob both graduate the same year. Amy decides to delay her investing by 10 years and starts investing at age 35 years of age. Now, she's a pharmacist. Rob, on the other hand, is an engineer. Robert decides to start investing straight away as soon as he graduates. Both earn approximately $100,000 per year and both are able to save around $1,400 per month. Now let's assume a conservative 7% per annum return and an expense ratio of 0.2%. Obviously, there's some variabilities here, but again, this highlights the point really, really well. Where would Amy be at age 65? She would have $1.5 million. Where would Rob be at age 65? Now, he's going to have almost double that, $3.2 million. It makes complete sense. That is, the 10 years Amy delayed has cost her $1.7 million, and that's opportunity cost. Now, that's a pretty easy point to make, but let's say Rob stops investing after 10 years. In other words, he stops investing when Amy starts investing at the age of 35. So Rob invests from 25 to 35 And Amy starts from 35 onwards and she keeps investing for the rest of her life. But Rob has actually stopped investing after the first 10 years of his investing life. Would the situation change? Would Amy actually catch up? Well, Amy, if she did that, would be at $1.5 million at age 65. But if Rob stopped investing at the age of 35 after starting at the age of 25, he would still have more. He'd have $1.71 million at the age of 65. So, Rob ends up being ahead by $127,000 despite only investing for 10 years and not putting a single cent after age 35. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know whether I've done my job right. So, the moral here is start early, do it forever. That's why early in your journey, savings rate is far more important than focusing just on investment returns. So those are the 13 investing truths that you need to know. And this episode has been a little bit longer than expected and hopefully I've nailed the points individually using examples to try and inspire you, to try and get you to save money and invest and please do it now.
Now that's about it for this episode. Stay tuned for more episodes coming up. We've got some interesting topics and some interesting questions, and I'm doing a special episode coming up just with all the Q and A's that I've been sort of accumulating, um, looking at the Facebook group. So, um, stay tuned for that one. And remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever podcasting platform that you may be using, or leave a five-star review on all of the podcasting platforms. That's even better. But please leave a positive review. And the more ratings and reviews you leave, the better it is for people because this is a free podcast and I want as many people to listen to this possible, especially if you're a healthcare worker. So please keep them coming. My name's Dev Raga from My Millennium Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.